Founder Space Startup Supercharge. I'm Captain Hawk, CEO of Founder Space, the leading global startup accelerator. I'm also author of the award-winning books Make Elephants Fly, Surviving a Startup, and The Five Horses. Welcome to the Founder Space podcast. I am here today with Miriam Shulman. She is the author of a new book, Artpreneur, which is all about how artists have to become entrepreneurs and what they need to know to succeed. She is also host of a great podcast. I've been on it, the Inspiration Place podcast, so you have to check that out. And she has a really interesting background. She is not just an artist these days, but she has a long track record. She went to MIT, uh, studied computer science. She went to work for Wall Street. And Miriam, welcome to the show. And can you start by telling us a little about yourself? Oh, thanks for having me on, Steve. So yes, it is true. I, I did go to MIT and I did work on Wall Street. And this is the type of thing my husband always wanted to work into conversations because he always thought that was the most important part of me that I worked in derivatives and worked for long-term capital management, which people who have gone to business school know about that. That's the hedge fund that famously imploded in 1998. So you were privileged enough to be part of that. (laughs) Yeah. I was on the front row of a lot of financial disasters in the nineties because of my work in derivatives. And and I realize I probably messed it up. I said you studied computer science at MIT, but I think no, it was that something is, else. No, that is actually true. So my it was a master of science. It was in the engineering, uh, civil engineering department, but I actually was in an AI lab, um, which was such. I like, I'm so amazed now, if I only knew, maybe I would have stuck it out, who knows, but it was called a knowledge-based expert system. So we would wow. sit there and program these questions. And I was, I was, you were way ahead I was of your not time. impressed. <laughs> you were, those were the old days of AI. That's <laughs> right. Early days. That's right. So, um, so you made this migration. Tell us a little about what made you move from the wall street world to the art world. Yeah, it's it's so interesting that you say that because usually I'm asked the question the other way around. Like, I've always considered myself in my heart an artist. So the question I'm usually asked is, well, why'd you go to Wall Street? So I had well, swallowed I, I the Kool Aid. I know why you went to Wall Street. You yeah, went for I swallowed. Money. The, yeah, I, that's exactly right. I I didn't believe I could make a living as an artist. Yes. And I had these math skills, and so I was like, okay. I'll make money then. Where do they make the most money? Yes. As long and as even you're... when I was in engineering school, I saw my friends. Oh, well, they said, it's not, it's not here, Miriam. <laughs> it's like, there's this graph they used to draw where like the more education you have, the more money you make until you reach like masters. And then it drops off because the PhDs all were making nothing. You know, they were just like- They were professors. That's right, that's <laughs> right. researchers. That's right. So, so a lot of no, my friends were leaving MIT to go work for Wall Street. And so that's that's where I went. Yeah, and, now and the question, honestly, yeah. if you can't follow your passion, you might as well make some money. So- so you you probably did quite well on Wall Street, and you were in some wild times, uh, you know, World Trade Center, all of these things. Uh, 
Tell us just a little about that and then how you made the migration to the art world and, and what motivated you and how it turned out. Okay, so I never stopped um, believing that in my heart, I'm an artist. I just didn't know I could make a living from that. But what happened was there was a few things. I was at the World Trade Center during the first bombing and my coworkers were still, were worked through the whole thing. And so when 9-11 did happen, I was like, okay, well, if I was still in working there, I'd be dead. Um, I did go to the hedge fund that was in Connecticut, which imploded. So that's another reason why I left. I mean, like this, I, I, for people who don't know, we left, we lost like four and a half billion dollars and all the banks. That's a good buy. enough reason to leave. <laughs> I well, I became very disillusioned with what I was doing. And when I first left, I did not know that I would be an artist. I thought I would do something else because um, I didn't believe I could make a living. So at first I did Pilates, I taught, I was a Pilates instructor. And when I was working for the gym and they were teaching me selling strategies for personal training packages, that's when I had my aha moment that was like, oh, I could use those strategies to sell my art. Interesting. So tell me, uh, maybe some, you know, what did you learn from your Pilates gym? What did they teach you about selling? Because all of our listeners here, they have to sell and they're passionate about their products, you know, all what they're doing. Yeah. What they're yeah. And, 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 you know, a lot of this also just goes back to when I was on wall street too. Like even recently I was looking back at how much marketing I actually did in order to succeed, especially as a woman, um, in a, for a derivatives trading floor, like what oh, yeah. you have to do to really market yourself and make sure like, even as an employee, you have to market yourself to your bosses. So I think, you know, success in life, whether you are a startup, an employee, an entrepreneur, it's all about marketing and mindset. Mm -hmm. Those are the two things. And that's going to trump talent every single time. Mm -hmm. And that's talent as an artist or talent in it, yourself as a business coach or or even your product. I mean, like, look at the, I was going to say those silly spinners that really took off for a while. You know, sometimes it's just about like having the right marketing is going to make something take off and the right mindset. Yes, absolutely. It's true with startups because all of it's, you have to have faith in the company. You know, when a startup begins, they're nothing. They're just a bunch of people together with an idea and and a graph that looks like a hockey stick, but they're, they're at the very bottom. So how do you get everybody on board? How do you get investors on board? How do you get your early customers? Let's, you know, a lot of this parallels what you wrote about in Artpreneur. So artists also, you know, they, they, they have a business, they have their products that they've made, they've made these creations, they have to get them out there. Give us some of the tips that you walk people through to really get a business going at an early stage. Okay. All right. So let me just dial it back a bit. Cause you minute, you mentioned about like, when you're a startup, you have to get investors. When you're an artist, you have to get collectors. When I was employee, I had to get the other traders. All these are people. It's all about the relationships and investing into the relationship. Now, what I talk about in artpreneur, it starts with the belief triad. So the belief triad, that is, that's something I made up. So if you never heard about it before, that's why. So we've all heard in, in any self-development book, oh, you have to believe in yourself. Duh. You have to believe in your product. Okay. What they don't talk about is you have to believe in your buyer. You have to love your buyer. And when you don't, that is when you're going to self-sabotage. So you have to believe 
in your investor. You have to believe in your customer. You have to believe that the audience is out there. So the best uh, analogy that I love, which is in the book, Artpreneur, is Pretty Woman. So did you see that movie, Steve? Oh, yes. A, okay. a long time ago. All right. So for those who haven't, or it's been a while, so uh, Julia Roberts plays a, a basically a hooker. We can say yes. courtesan. She's a hooker. Richard Gere is probably, a, I don't know, a venture capitalist. I don't know what he does. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention to that he's part. He's a rich guy. <laughs> right. He's a rich guy. And he needs Julia Roberts to be his ladylike escort for all these venture capital type meetings that he has to go to. He hands her uh, his gold card to go, go shopping, buy yourself some clothes. Great. However, she goes through a day of drive wearing her her hooker outfit and the salespeople won't wait on her because they don't believe in the buyer. They don't believe in her. They don't believe she has the money to pay for it. So they're mean to her. They won't wait on her. She leaves. She goes to another store. They wait on her. She comes back to the other store. Now she's all dressed up. She looks like a million dollars. You know, she looks like princess, whatever, princess Kate. She has all like her, her shopping bags. And she says to the salespeople, Hey, you remember me work on commission, big mistake. Yet Steve, how many times have we self-sabotaged because we are thinking thoughts like, Oh, they don't like me. They don't like what I'm offering. It's too expensive. They don't have the money for this. All these thoughts, they want something cheaper. And not believing in your buyers, how then you self-sabotage. Yes. And it's so easy to do and at an early stage when you're in a business, because you don't have any proof to show them that your product is great. You might not have any other customers at that point or just a handful. And you figure everybody else, why wouldn't they buy from somebody who has a lot of customers, who has a lot of proof, you know, who comes in here with all the right marketing materials. So yeah, if you don't believe, you don't get there. So you, you get this triad going. And what are the next steps you recommend artpreneurs and entrepreneurs take uh, to really fueling, the, getting the growth going, getting that, that flywheel going in their business? Yeah. So one of the things I talk about, and it sounds so basic, but and yet I'm surprised how many people don't do this. And it, I'm not just talking about artists. I'm talking about like even my business friends who are like, oh, really? Uh, create a separate business bank account. Don't mix your business and personal. You're not going to be floating your, your business with your personal and moving money back and forth. Every dollar you make that is a business dollar goes into that account. Every dollar you need to spend has to come out of that account because when you miss, mix business with personal and you never know how much money you're making, that's when you know you have a starving artist or a failed business or whatever. So I oh, always yeah. say don't mix business with personal and that will make your decision-making process that much easier. A lot of times I hear people say, uh, I don't know if I can invest in that. I need to ask my partner. <laughs> yes. Well, if you're mixing business with personal, of course you have to ask your partner. In what you should do, and this is something I recommend too, is you should fund your business just like you were an investor. Yes. And you should yes. hold yourself accountable to that and make yes. goals and milestones you have to hit with, if you're going to fund it with $10,000, where do you want to get with that $10,000? Exactly. All right. So it starts there. Then we have the five parts of the passion to profit system. Now, I translate this for artists, but all of this comes from the business world. So the five parts, everything begins with the letter P because that makes it cute. 
We have uh, production. What are you producing? Is it sneakers? Is it paintings? Is it software? What are you pricing it at? Uh, how are you finding your prospects? That's the third piece, prospecting. And for that, I recommend you build an email list, not social media, because uh, you know all these artists who think they're going to get make money off of TikTok. Well, TikTok may be going bye bye soon. <laughs> yeah, you know, like. We've heard about that. Right. And even Instagram, I, I am so shocked that uh, I've been trying to go live, not trying, I am going live on Instagram on the regular right now to promote the book. And I have 25,000 followers on Instagram. Which is a and, good amount. Which is a good amount. Right. And I've been going live at random times during the day. And right before you go live, Instagram will say to you, X number of follower of your followers are, are live right now. Steve, can you guess how many out of 25,000 um, are live at any one time? Wow. Um, they, the middle of the day, the middle of the day, like three o'clock when people, most people are bored. 5,000? Out of 25,000, you would think, right? Yeah, at least. You know? okay. at least. I'm taking a conservative number based on your question. Today, when I went live at uh, three o'clock, there were 60 people. No. Oh, Oh my goodness. Okay. 60 Facebook's out of 25,000 were, were live. And that's not nothing to do with the algorithm. That's I not like choosing. Conservative. That's not choosing to show. Yeah. That has nothing to do with any of that. Just how many people are actually on the platform out of 25,000 people. Right. To see your post when you make it. Yeah. So, you know, what I've noticed, and it's, you know, I've cut way down on the time I spend on social media yeah. because I found I was spending an inordinate amount of time on social media and getting very little ROI on that. Like 100%. I could get much more ROI if I'm talking directly to my customers, put it instead of just talking in general to this mass of people who you now pointed out aren't even listening. No, not even there. They're not there. So they they're can't not hear there, it. period. Like yeah. I wish I knew I had that stat when I wrote my book. So when I started writing my book, the statistic was that for the average person, um, they could expect a 1% engagement rate. And even when they engage, wait, what does wait, it mean? Wait, wait, what does it mean? Okay, I know, you but know? wait, it gets worse. It gets <laughs> just, worse. It gets worse. By the time yeah. I went to edit the book yes. and double check the statistic, yeah. it had dropped to 0.6% of <laughs> engagement, of engagement. Okay, yes. okay, right. Okay. And then you expect this. Okay. Well, what about influencers? So yes. how much better would you expect influencers to be? Oh, a lot better than me, that's for sure. A lot better than the average. Okay. Okay. They're doing better. They're doing twice as good, but twice uh, point of two? 0.6 is 0. 0.12. Yeah. That's what it is. If you're an influencer, 1.12%. It's ridiculous. That's their, and those you are know, the people spending all of their time doing we, this. And what are we getting out of it? That's You brought up a great thing. If nothing else for this episode, that people that tuned in, and I had this gut, but I didn't have the numbers. And you just gave me the numbers to back up my gut. I was like, I'm wasting so much time on the right. social media. And I can see like when I talk to like a real customer, like That's things right. happen. When I go on social media, you know, you said the engagement level is like going one, you know, but what's even the conversion? That's right. So there's dollars into your bank account. 
There's statistics Go on ahead. that as well. Um, like, uh, I don't have those numbers at my fingertips, but the reason I, I have all these numbers is because with my initial draft of the book, one of the editors gave a lot of pushback because I go through very traditional marketing techniques in the book that are evergreen. Like you said, talking directly to your customers, sending physical mail pieces, uh, you know, picking up the phone, sending email. And the, the, the editor says, oh, she's, she's, it's because she's in her 50s. She's old fashioned. She didn't grow up with social media. <laughs> and I was like, well, obviously I didn't lay my case out strong enough. And I, so I doubled down on, on laying out my case about why you can't depend on social media, why it's unimportant. And everyone from Marie Forleo to Ryan Dice are all saying the same thing. The future of marketing is email, not social media. Yeah, email and directly contacting people. That's correct. Face-to-face -face That's contact. correct. It, In person, and did they uh, believe physical you mail, and phone calls. Because I know we have the same publisher for our books. It's a major publisher. Did they believe <laughs> you? <laughs> Well, I don't know. They let me print it. <laughs> it <looks> like, <laughs> you know, the, the, the problem is we've all bought into the myth of social media in yeah. terms of marketing, right? It's been going for, you know, decades now, this, and it's like the hype. It's, there's a lot of hype there because there's not a lot of transparency into what's really happening, but you're starting to shine the light on this. And I think it's really important for people to know that, uh, you know, you need to figure out which buttons to press because your time is your most valuable thing, right? That's the gating factor for you growing your business. And if you are spending a lot of time on something that gives a very little result, just because everybody's telling you to do it, just because everybody else is doing it, um, that isn't a wise thing. Yeah. I was on a podcast, I think it was for artists where they were saying, I'm so glad you're talking about how um, not to use Instagram. Cause I have so many people saying, no, Instagram is the future. And I said to the host, oh, do they, do they teach Instagram for artists? Is that their business? <laughs> of yeah. course. There's of a course lot of it was, of business. course it was. And like I said, even if you did everything right, 1.12%, it's right. not worth it. Right. So if you want to make money, which is what your book is about, which is what entrepreneurs are supposed to be doing yes. and artists, if they want to continue to be artists, except as a hobby, they need to be doing, um, you have to do that. So that's great. You know, I also love, I want to go into pricing because I know you have a lot of wisdom about pricing that people don't really think about. And I actually, you know, I, I've been listening to your podcast and going into your book and stuff, and I learned a lot. So why don't we uh, talk about some of those nuggets on pricing. Okay. So in, in the book, there's a whole chapter on pricing. I call it 14 uh, abundant artist lessons. And it is, again, I, I had to rewrite things up until the last moment that we hit publish because the world is changing and the way we shop is changing. You know, the pandemic has changed the way we shop. Amazon had changed the way they, that way we shop. But one lesson that I want to share with the listener, Steve, is the difference between prestige and charm pricing, because a lot of people don't know this and they get it wrong. And I didn't know it. Honestly, I got it wrong. I was doing uh, charm pricing when I, when sometimes I should have been doing prestige pricing. So talk about that. Okay. So charm pricing is what most people know about. That is when you price, uh, when Hanes prices a pack of underwear at $14.97. Like, so right below a threshold. Now, um, you know, maybe it's four, $497 instead of $500. That is charm 
pricing. And it works in some industries because you're perceiving a number that's $497 as being in the 400s rather than being $500. So that helps. That type of pricing is processed by the logical part of the brain. Now, the researchers have shown that when it comes to something like a bottle of champagne, a luxury good, that those items actually sell better when it is a rounded number. So the researchers had had priced it at like, I forget the exact numbers, like $38 and $40 even, and maybe another one was $41 and whatever. So the $40 bottle of champagne sold better. And the reason why is because rounded numbers are processed by the emotional side of the brain. Now, which side of the brain do you want your customers using when they are making a purchasing decision, the emotional side or the logical side? And it depends on the product. That's and correct. the environment, right? So if you're That's going out correct. for champagne and, and you, you want to feel good, right? You're not buying it <laughs> to save a penny, a few bucks, right? right? If you were trying to save a few bucks, you wouldn't be buying champagne. So, But, but here's what I want your, yeah. your listeners to also hear. Yeah. So Walmart prices everything to the penny. Why? Because they want their customers to know because their customers are nickel and penny, you know, nickel and dime minded customers that they're counting every penny. Now, if you have something, let's say uh, a high end service or a coaching package, do you want to attract penny pinchers? No, because they're not going to be your good customers. Anyway. That's correct. That is correct. So that's the other thing you need to consider when you are pricing, who is it that you want to attract in that moment? Right. So yeah, is, it, like, is it worth um, like letting them think that it's in the 400s rather than the 500s if you're going to attract those people? Yeah, because when you're going to Walmart, you're going there to save money. You're not going there for the ambiance. You're not going there for you know the highest quality products. You're going there for the best value for your money. So if you're on Walmart, a lot of times you're on Amazon, you're, you're shopping for value. Um, however, there are a lot of products out there, luxury products, art, of course, right? You know, when you're going out for fine dining, uh, things like that, it's not about uh, uh, saving a few bucks. It's about, you know, what's the, the best experience. experience. Yes. And yes. And then the other thing is that, Ooh, I was going to say something. Now I forgot. I'm just, gonna... <laughs> just roll with it. This <laughs> <laughs> the part for the editor. No, I'm just kidding. So I okay. loved your stuff about the pottery barn. Let's talk about that because that's a, a kind of a store that you might think could go either way, but you discovered something. Oh yeah. Okay. So there's, so we're talking about decimal points matter, right? That's what we're talking about with whether you do it 97 or you round it, but also symbols matter. So Steve, you were just talking about when you go to a restaurant. Now, if you like fine dining and I'm a foodie, so I do, if you like fine dining and you go to a really nice restaurant, you'll notice that they don't put the currency symbols on the menu. Oh, yes. So not only is it rounded, but it'll just say thir like 38 period, you know, like that's the price of, of the fish of the day. It doesn't say dollar sign 38. And it certainly doesn't say $38 and 52 cents, by the way, just 
just like that's given. So researchers have shown that when you don't put the currency sign on the menu, and I think this was Cornell Hotel, you know, they, they do the research on the hospitality industry. So they had shown that people will spend more money when you don't put the dollars on the price tags, because now they're not thinking of it as a transaction anymore. Yeah. So they're not thinking it as money. They're thinking more experiential. So, that's right. uh, you know, and they're not thinking, oh, how can I save an extra buck and get, you know, get the cheaper entree? <laughs> they're like, yeah, oh, well, yeah, this is the price. These are the entrees. I just pay it. This is what I want. Yes. So that's uh, super true uh, for uh, certain types of products, art being one. You know, I, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to do that in an art gallery. That's Put correct. the dollar sign in the decimal That's correct. Okay, so that. now I remember what I wanted to say before. So the other thing is, we always assume that customers are motivated by price, and that is absolutely not true. So even on the Walmart website, which is for value hunters, so this is what you know you were talking about. When you go on Walmart's website, the default search engine is not lowest price. It's most popular. Yes. Which shows you that even the Walmart customer is not necessarily looking for the lowest price. Now, why is that? Because at the heart of a buying decision, customers are worried about making a mistake. Yes. And it's true. Oh, you know, when I shop on Amazon, my most important criteria is not the price, um, it is the reviews. Right. Yes. I want to make sure I get a product that I don't regret. I want to make sure I buy the right one and I don't regret it and have to have the hassle of returning it. Yes. So that is something very important. Now we we want we go all the way back to the belief triad where we started this conversation about why it's so important to believe in yourself, believe in your product, and believe in the customer. When you are uncertain of one of those things, you will project uncertainty. And human beings do not like that. They crave certainty. If they're sensing any uncertainty from you, it, it will repel them. You will not get the money for your startup. You will not close the sale because that will make them feel indecisive. So how do you fix that? You have to make in your own life very decisive decisions and commit to making decisions. Making decisions, not worrying about the best decision all the time, but making a quicker decision and committing to it and seeing it through, because that will help you project that air of certainty that is more magnetic and you will make more sales and attract more customers. I've noticed this myself because I was naturally not a great salesperson. It's not something that I'm good at. Um, it's not in my core nature. You know, some people are naturally great at sales. And I noticed because I wasn't good, I felt very uncertain when I would go into these sales situations. And then that, I could just see it rippling through <laughs> the room to the other people. They became uncertain. It was very hard for me to close. I had to work really hard to gain confidence and get over that in order to actually become decent at sales. Yeah. So how did you learn sales? I mean, I give all nine steps for selling inside my book. Did you okay. study the sales well, process? I have read your book, but it wasn't around. <laughs> That's what I should have done. You know, I learned through trial and error, a lot of it. Good for you. I, I learned through analyzing what I did and what I didn't do. And I, you know, what one of my techniques was I watched uh when I'm selling it, it was really business development. So face-to-face -face with pe people. So I could read their face for feedback. 
and they will give you real-time feedback on everything you're doing. And if, you know, driving uh, home from every of the sales meetings I'd go to because I had my own startup and I was pitching to investors and pitching to customers, every time I would drive on the drive home, I'd replay the entire sales process in my head and take note of when their eyes lit up and they were like leaning forward, when they were you know, they were kind of hesitating when they were looking at their phone and I would draw correlations and then change my behavior based on that. Beautiful. I love that. So let's talk a little more. Uh, we're almost out of time, but this is so good. I want to get a little more out of you. Uh, a few more ideas from your book um, that entrepreneurs uh, could really learn from. Okay. So let's, let's talk about, you want to talk about the sales process? Sure. Okay. So the first thing I would, I would like to say is introduce yourself properly. <laughs> That's the first step. And, but I am shocked how many people don't do this. When I walk into a store and the salesperson doesn't introduce themselves. And if, by the way, if you want better service, <laughs> introduce yourself too. So like, I've discovered that like, hi, what's your name? Oh, you're Jade. And I, I do that whether I'm in a restaurant I do that whether I'm in a store because I will always get better service when I use the person's name. Likewise, introduce yourself and get to know your customer and who they are, who you're talking to. And that's any situation. That's this is like you 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 asked me before we hit record. Make sure this isn't just for artists. This is for everyone. If and you're selling something, you got to start with social skills 101. Yes, and getting to know your customer is key because if you don't know what they're really after, like if you're in if you're in a store helping them, if you're doing business development for your startup or you're doing art and you don't know what your customer really wants to buy, then you're never going to be able to sell them. Yeah. So for the selling um, chapter, I call that listen to understand because telling is not selling. Lis listening is the most um, important piece of that. And what Steve had just shared with his story is he was listening and paying attention to every single thing his customer was doing. And you don't have to be born with the right personality. In fact, introverts will actually make better salespeople because we're the best listeners. And it's people true. love to be listened to. Right. And yeah. And if you actually use that knowledge that you gain from listening. Uh, yes. And, because you really help. are listening. You're not just right. asking questions to ask questions because right. Miriam told you to. You're, you're actually listening to understand. To understand and then to guide the conversation and guide them towards the right solution for them. Because that's why you're in front of them. Usually you're in front of people who want something, right? They're there for a reason. Now, to, let's go back to art because art is really interesting. So you have these very uh, ephemeral products, right? They are value, you know, what's the value of a painting? It's the, is the, is it the value that the artist believes the painting is worth? Is it the value the gallery thinks it's worth? Is it what society says it's worth? Is there in the art world, there's another value, you know, that people with similar paintings going, how, how does an artist even come to pricing their painting and figuring that out. I'm just curious. Okay, everyone hates this answer. It's all made up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, but isn't that true of everything? I mean- It's the true of the valuation of a startup now in Silicon Valley. Like people are like, how do I value my startup? <laughs> well, I give the analogy in Artpreneur of a black t-shirt. I mean, you can find black t-shirts for sale for $5 and you can find black t-shirts for sale for $500. You can with the, with I, the I, little like, logo on it. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. If it's Armani, you know, so uh, yeah. So like what, what makes it the price? So it is developing that relationship with your customer. It is developing, I call it like a micro celebrity. I don't know if that, that word kind of gets a bad rap, but it's creating kind of that micro celebrity opportunities. You become a celebrity in the minds of your customer. You are creating that relationship and all these things are going to matter and increase the value. And it's also about going to that hierarchy of needs. It is not about, by the way, everyone loves to say it's about solving the problem. No. It's about pleasure. People will pay a heck of a lot more for pleasure. And the analogy I like to use is with the MasterCard commercial. So those, the, the MasterCard commercial that debuted in 97, and they've been countless iterations of this, but the first one that came out, there was a father and a son going to a baseball game. And you have a narrator saying, you know, hot dogs, $5, soda, $10, autograph card, $25. And then they get to the last 15 seconds and they'll say relationship between a father and son, priceless. Now this is a MasterCard commercial. Did they talk about the benefits of the MasterCard? Did they talk about the interest rate? Did they talk about it's convenient to have a two inch piece of plastic that you can, you know, these are all the fe the benefits because people right. say, oh, talk about problems, talk about benefits. No. It was about the emotional experience that they were creating for their customer. And now, so remember, we're talking about the prestige pricing, pricing so that they use their emotions. They were creating an emotional experience about a MasterCard for their customers and associating those good feelings with their brand. And this, this is particularly too, true for products that people already understand. So they already know the benefits of a MasterCard. We all know like why we use credit cards. Same with an automobile. We know, you know, we're getting an automobile to go from point A to point B, we need it. But then auto commercials aren't about that. They aren't about the features of the car. They are really about image, just like you're talking about, right? right. This feeling you get driving your SUV through the mountains. So with art, I think the same thing applies. Now in the art world, uh, people are buying art because maybe they love the art itself and they can imagine it in their home. Maybe they have a real affinity for the artist and the story behind the artist. And you That's said right. that micro celebrity. And That's then right. there's also status. I'm sure that plays a big part in buyer's decision because, you know, art is a status symbol. It's something yes. that reflects who you are. But that's why I said identity. you go to the go to that hierarchy of needs because it's not the solving the problem is the lowest thing. And it, that is not what's going to drive your prices up. Toilet yes. paper solves a problem. Yes. So when I first started out, when I was selling my art and I was looking at these marketing experts and I said to them, I don't get it. What is problem am I solving? They said, well, it's a blank wall. Well, a mirror can solve that problem. Right. Why, why, do, why do they need to spend money on or, my painting? Or a lot cheaper, you know. That's right. Right. And th that goes to like about the cheaper being easier to sell. No. So it it is about that. What does buying that art say about the person who is collecting it? And we're going back to that belief tribe. You got to love your buyer. You got to believe in them. You got to believe that they want to see themselves as the kind of person who collects original art. Yes. And now substitute and whatever it is your business is for that sentence right there. But art being something, you know, th that's what I sell. It's like that self-actualization piece that I help people see themselves as the kind of person who collects mm -hmm. original art. 
and then then I'm sure you step them through how they how you know when they wake up every day having that art in their home how that would transform how they think of themselves and then when they have guests over how the, the guests would think of them all that plays into it yeah and again telling isn't selling so i don't yes. have to come up with that spiel i can it, ask the question so i will simply just ask them where do you imagine hanging this in your ah home? yes and then that gets them to visualize it exactly and so i future pace them and yes. they tell their own stories to talk themselves into collecting the art and this is great advice for any entrepreneur so if you're selling a product instead of telling them all the benefits and everything else ask them how would they use the product what would that do for them and listen right because then it's then they're having to go through that in their mind and in a way they're buying it in their head we all buy it in our head before we actually verbalize it that's right make your job easier let the customer talk themselves into buying right just by asking the right questions so the key a lot of the key uh whether you're selling art or anything else shares in your company and in your vision and your you know what you're going to change the world uh it comes down to uh structuring figuring out maybe what are the 10 best questions you could be asking when you're engaging with a certain type of customer exactly you know and and then testing those questions in the real world going out there and seeing which actually get the results you want and then fine-tuning that the order of them how you phrase them uh and and who who you ask what questions so this has been really great miriam uh we are going to wrap up now we're we're coming to the end of our 20 minutes can you give us uh one final piece of advice something that you learned along the way that really made a big difference in your life. Okay, so I, I think that step one, choose to believe the power sentences in your mind is the most important thing, which is why mm -hmm. I start with that. So when I was writing this book, thank God I didn't know how hard it was to get an agent and a publisher. I really had no idea. I was just convinced that it would happen. So the sentence I would say in my mind is I'm going, I'm going to publish, I'm going to get a book publishing contract. Yes. And it sounds like so simple and so easy. And I'm not talking about this from the law of attraction perspective. I'm talking about when you are taking action from that place of having complete belief, your actions will be different. It's so true. Like every startup I started and my books too, if I knew how hard it was, I wouldn't have started. I would have right. something. Like, God, we were hard. naive and stupid, you know, too, like too hard and too painful. And, you know, all these things and all the rewrites, like, especially when you're writing a book, like it takes forever, like your concept. You, and you did three of them. That's like having children after you had one, like you yes, knew. I had three kids and I've actually written four books in total and that's enough. Um, I don't know if I'll go through that again, uh, but uh, let me uh, let me let you actually let you tell our audience how they can reach you, how they can get your book, how they can listen to your podcast, and we will wrap up. Okay. So if you liked what you heard today, there's more where that came from. I sound like a drug dealer. So there's more <laughs> where that came from at the Inspiration Place podcast. 
uh, Steve and I had a great conversation all about AI and what it means for the art world. So I would love for you to go find me on the Inspiration Place. And if you want to pick up Artpreneur either, either for yourself or for a gift for an artist in your life that you want to encourage, the book is Artpreneur. It will be in stores January 31st. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you liked it, hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends. You can help us create more great content by subscribing and sharing. Also, if you want to access our online startup program, our investor network, and our entrepreneur resources, just come to founderspace.com.